If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Our New Testament reading this morning, Acts 19. It's a lengthy portion. I'll read verses 1 through 29. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go on to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, 
who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, in it may we see Jesus. May we see the ways that you planted these early churches some of the effects of them in the lives of believers in the city around. And may it stand as a challenge to us. Lord, we desire the gospel to go out, for churches to be planted, for your name to be known. Lord, would you develop in us this heart? Even today, we pray in Christ's name. You may be seated. You like movies with backstory? Books that have a backstory? A whole generation of people were made aware of Star Wars in 1977. It's a fantastic series. But it starts in a weird place. It starts in episode four. A New Hope. And then followed up in 1980, the Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi in 83. And then we had to wait years and years. In 99, we finally got episode one. Now, I'm not going to debate the merits of those episodes, those early episodes. I hear some laughter. Um, but we get the backstory. Well, today we're, we're talking a, a bit of backstory. We're beginning a a series on Ephesians. I thought it would be helpful, rather than to jump right in, chapter 1, verse 1, it would be helpful for us to get some backstory. And this backstory is right here, Acts 19. We see the planting of a church. Many of you know that we, as elders, had a retreat. And we discussed a, a lot of things about grace. We talked a lot about who we are as the people of God. We talked a lot about our strengths, our weaknesses. Yes, weaknesses. Uh, We encouraged one another in the gospel and we dreamed together. We're aware that our city has lots of issues. We're aware that there are problems, not just in the church, but around the church. 
And when we think about addressing those, and we think about what the gospel does in our city, in our town, the, the thing that comes up again and again and again is planting churches. The gospel going out in our community. That's the, the way, the, the best way that we have uh, discussed and, and prayed about what this looks like in terms of addressing issues in our town. Our Old Testament text today was read because we see in Acts 19, this is, this is what God is doing. He is fulfilling this promise to bless the nations, to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's seed. So as we open Acts 19, I want us to consider what it is to plant a church. What does that look like? What did it look like in Acts? What did it look like as the church was planted in Ephesus? I want us to learn some lessons that will be informative for us as we go through the letter to the Ephesian church. So a church plant involves Jesus. It involves Jesus Christ. He's the power of the church. He's the sole head and king of the church. So any discussion of the church must involve Jesus Christ. We'll see in this text, Jesus believed and disciples being made. We'll see Jesus being advanced and warnings issued. And we'll see Jesus rejected and get some insight into the reality of idolatry. First, Jesus believed and disciples made. To understand what's going on in chapter 19, you have to look back a little bit. And this guy, Apollos, from North Africa, from Alexandria. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he heard uh, the gospel being taught. He was proclaiming this, this truth of John the Baptist to others. And then he was pulled aside. They, they were like, hey, we need to tell you a little bit more of the story. We need to tell you about Jesus. That kind of sets the backdrop for what's going on in Acts 19. Paul rolls up into town. He unpacks all the tools of his trade and he gets to work. He goes to the local synagogue and there he finds a group of people who are disciples of John the Baptist. Think about John the Baptist for a minute. John was a forerunner of Jesus. He was not himself the Messiah. He came though saying, hey, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. He came saying, you're sinners. You need a Savior. Repent and be baptized. That's all they had. Paul asked the people there, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is a, this is a big question. It's a loaded question. Because if you've read all of Acts, you know that Pentecost has come. The Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven with signs and wonders. So he asked this band of people, hey, did you guys receive the Spirit when you believed? He said, no, we haven't even heard of the Spirit. That was clue number one. No. But Matthew chapter 3 clearly spells out this sending of the Spirit. 
John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Even John pointed ahead to one who was greater than him. John's disciples, these men at Ephesus, were stuck. They were stuck. They had part of the story. They had a piece of it. But a crucial part was missing. So Paul gives them a second question. Into what then were you baptized? They answered, John's baptism. Here Paul knows that these families, they don't know the whole story. They've got a piece of it. They've got part of it. But they're stuck. They're stuck in John's baptism of repentance. But they're not looking at the whole story. He tells them, Paul tells them in 19.4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. That is Jesus. John was never enough. John was great, but John couldn't save anyone. John's whole role in life was to point people to the one who would come after him. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. We're told then that they receive the Holy Spirit. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. We see this language only a few times in all the New Testament. We see it at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes on those disciples. We see it again as the gospel goes out in Samaria. We see believers receive the Spirit there. We see the Gentiles receive the Spirit. And then here, we see disciples of John receive the Spirit And it is attended with these signs and wonders. And this language won't be used anymore. So what's going on with that? Just a quick excursus over there. Jesus says, hey, take this gospel. Take this message. Go make disciples in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then Acts goes on to tell us that's exactly what happens. In all these areas, in all these regions that the gospel is going out, people are hearing the good news and receiving the Spirit of God. What does this teach us? What does this passage, this early portion teach us about Jesus and the importance of the gospel in the church? It says this, we can be very well-meaning people. We can be kind people in our community. We can know a lot of religious stuff. We can even have some good answers for people. If they come to us, they can think of us as an expert in religion. 
But if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have the King and His Gospel, then you have nothing. A church that doesn't have Jesus Christ and His Gospel is no church. The heart of Christianity, the heart of discipleship is to know Christ and the power of His Gospel. Without Jesus, we're dead in our sins. No matter how well-meaning, no matter how many people come to the church, no matter how many people give themselves to a religious life or a spiritual life, without Jesus, it is utterly empty and devoid of power. Another application here is Baptism matters. I'm not saying that baptism saves. I'm saying it matters. And to what were you baptized, he asks. It's a good question. Child of God, can you answer that? Could you answer a question about the nature of your baptism? Look, sometimes I think we, we think of sacraments as tinker toys. Our pet project, something that, that we control and we manufacture. No, the sacraments of the church are given to us by the Lord Jesus Himself. They're meant for our good. They're meant for our spiritual nourishment. They're meant to be signs and seals of the reality that is Christ. We notice in Paul's life and ministry that he's carrying out the mission that Jesus gave. Make disciples. Go. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you always. Even to the end of the age. But that's the heart of church planting ministry. That's the heart of this church. The Word of Christ dwelling with us in our midst. Disciples being made. After this conversion, and this is a really small number, we see that Paul takes on this task of continuing to work with the people. Every day he goes into the synagogue and he is reasoning and contending and we've already seen what the heart of this reasoning and contending is. It is Christ. It is Jesus. I love uh, the fact that this early church was called the way. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about us as Christians? We are members of the way. It's reminiscent of Jesus, right? Who alone can make some bold statement like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And those who follow are members of the way. We're told that after reasoning for two months in the synagogue, that things went sideways. This early church faced some hard times. They could no longer reason in the synagogue. There were some Jewish leaders that did not like all this Jesus business. Did that slow Paul down? 
Was he, was he dead set and concerned about the synagogue has got to be the spot? No, he moved to the hall of Tyrannus. He, he went and rented a public hall in town and he continued discipleship. For two years, Paul was discipling. Some early texts, some early manuscripts talk about the hours that he was there, 11 to 4, daily. 11 to 4. I had a professor point this out recently. All those hours added up. If you include the time in the synagogue, the time in the hall of Tyrannus, this is the Apostle Paul teaching. This would be the equivalent of about three MDivs, three seminary educations at the hands of Paul the Apostle. If you want to know what he was teaching, read Ephesians. He's writing back to them. And in that letter, he's, he's giving them the core message that he, he spent years giving to them. He's summarizing all of that. And it's beautiful because it all centers around our identity in Christ. For years, Paul was proclaiming this beautiful truth that by faith in the Lord Jesus, you are united to Christ. And that has meaning, not just in one area of your life, but in every single area of life, that idea gets worked out. On the surface, I think we have two important things here to, to help us in the backdrop. One, Christ is central. Christ is central. In the planting of the church in Ephesus and also as we move forward in our study of the letter of Ephesians, there is no higher theme than Jesus Christ. And another thing I think we see here is there is a, a deep divide between believers and unbelievers. As the gospel goes out, it's encountering some, some rough waters. As Jesus advances, as the gospel goes out, as this church is planted, we're quickly taken to a warning. So the gospel's going out, extraordinary miracles were taking place. Handkerchiefs and aprons that even touch Paul would go out and heal people. Some of you are getting really excited. Man, I saw one of those handkerchiefs on sale the other day on TV. For $50, I could buy a handkerchief that was in the Jordan River. And if I could just touch that handkerchief, put it on my head, then I would be healed. That is not what's going on. In fact, this text is going to go to great lengths to say you better be real careful how you use, deploy the name of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the Apostle Paul. And this is the early church. This is not normative for us. Don't be taken in by a huckster. Please, if you have the overwhelming urge to buy one of these handkerchiefs, give me a call. I'll talk you off that ledge. 
The gospel is going out here and it's going out with extraordinary power and miracles are happening. Converts are being made. But you look into the, again, you look into the very heart of that. This church plant is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the gospel goes out, we see spiritual forces of evil. Listen, Ephesus is an idolatrous city. They have a vast temple. This thing is huge. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 425 feet long, nearly 200 feet wide. It was huge. And in it was this rock that was, they, they thought they saw the, the image of a woman. It was a temple dedicated to this false goddess, a goddess of fertility. Everything from crops to sexuality being devoted to this false god. And as such, as a religious center of idolatry, there were, there were lots of exorcisms going on. People having all kinds of d- demonic activity. And people were always looking to cash in on that. We see one of these uh, examples here. And here we see, you have to, again, be real careful how you treat the name of Christ. Acts 19, 14 to 16, seven sons of a Jewish high priest were getting in on all this action. Hey, we've seen the name of Jesus has done really good things over here. We're going to just use it over here. We're going to use it to make a little money. We're going to make a little profit on the name of Jesus. And in fact, we're going to ride Paul's coattails a little bit. Paul had become a well-known teacher by this point. We're going to ride those coattails and, and earn a heavy coin on the side as exorcists. So they try it out. But the evil spirit heard what they said and said, this, this is one of those um, few places in Scripture you're reading along and it's just kind of funny. Because they hear this name of Jesus and the name of Paul and they say, We've heard of Jesus. We know Paul. But who are you? Isn't that great? The name of Jesus is not for sale. And then what proceeds to happen is the guy can't find the exit quick enough. By the time he makes it in the street, all all these guys are naked and bloody. Having been beaten to a pulp, it sounds like to me they just barely escaped with their lives. There's a lot we could say about this event. There are spiritual forces of darkness at work. Those things do stand in mockery of and against the health and life of the church. Those things are true. These spiritual forces are absolutely under the control of God who has all power over them. We also learn that the name of Jesus or Paul or any other person is not up for sale to those who simply want to use it, throwing it around for power and authority. Do we ever see the name of Jesus as a talisman? As something we can throw around? As something we can use? 
I don't think anybody in grace is, is a threat to run around offering exorcisms in the name of Jesus and Paul. I don't think that's you. However, has Jesus become a name that we throw out in a culture that would celebrate religion as an end? And that's the only time we talk about Jesus. Do we simply use His name culturally and societally in Shreveport and in Bossier as it makes us equal, we're on, everybody knows what we're talking about, and we never deal with the substance of who He is? It's the same thing. It's no different. We're simply using the name of Jesus to, in a way that benefits us. If the name of Jesus ever means anything hard or confronting someone with the truth, we don't use it. Listen, if that's the only way we use the name of Jesus is to be in with the religious crowd, then you're no different than the sons of Sceva. The name of Jesus is getting you a certain social standing in society. And it has no real meaning for your life. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes about the reality of these spiritual forces. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen, as the gospel goes out, he's acknowledging that we wrestle He's acknowledging that we strive, that it's not easy. And he says that is not first and foremost the hard conversations that you have with your neighbors and unbelievers. It's not first and foremost flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And we'll talk more about that. That's what he's writing in this context of Ephesians. The backdrop is one where spiritual forces are everywhere. Listen, there's so many ways that we can think about this. But as the gospel goes out, do we ever pray? Do we ever pray for our neighbors? We pray for one another as the gospel is advancing. Do we pray that the Lord would protect and, and send His gospel out in, in ways that would be fruitful? Are we dependent on the Lord to do this? Or again, is the name of Jesus just some cheap thing that is over here on the side that we take up and use and, and then we tuck it back away when it's inconvenient? The result of this reverse exorcism is amazing. Verse 16, all the re residents of Ephesus heard about this and were afraid. Hey, you can't just use the name of Jesus. It's not for sale. The gospel is not for sale. Verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Literally, it was being magnified. Jesus was being made large. Hey, tricksters are trying to use it over here and they're utterly failing. And over here, it's transforming us. It's shaping everything about our life. 
Verse 18, believers come together confessing their sin. Listen, we do that week in and week out. We're invited to call on our Heavenly Father to fix the broken us, the sinful, rebellious us. That's what the church does. It's what it's always done. There's also another result, books. All these spell books, likely things that talk about exorcism and possession and idolatry, those were brought together and burned. Sin being confessed and idolatry being overthrown. And it it wasn't just a little bit. This was very costly. We're told that this was 50,000 pieces of silver, roughly $6 million in value. Listen, the gospel, as it advances, as it goes out, it changes things. It changes people. It changes lives. Has the gospel done that in you? Does the gospel going out in Grace Presbyterian Church, the name of Christ being exalted, as we see Him, do we see our sin? Let me ask you, are we quick to confess that to one another? And when something's been exposed that utterly needs to be upended and gotten rid of, is is that done? Listen, I've seen those things happen in three years here. And those have simultaneously been some of the hardest and most beautiful times in ministry here. Seeing the gospel utterly upend sin. And those things utterly tossed out and a newness of comfort and life in Christ given. Is that true in your life? Is the gospel doing that in you? Do we expect Jesus and his gospel to truly bring change? Listen, we never see in the Bible, we never see the gospel being this neutral entity anywhere. It's not neutral. As Jesus Christ is advanced, things happen. People change. Neighborhoods are impacted. Cities, Ephesus is utterly upended by the truth of the gospel. Another thing we need to note here is that, and this is again and again and again in Acts 19, it was people from all over the place that were hearing this news of Jesus. Residents of Ephesus, Asia, were told that Jews were being converted, Greeks were being converted, and all were being unified together under the banner of Christ. The letter to the Ephesians will have much more to say about this. Because the gospel is true and we're united to Christ, that has implications about the way that we are united to one another in Christ. In the pastoral prayer, this was prayed for. Lord, unite us across racial bounds, 
across socio and economic bounds, unite us together as the people of God in Christ. And we see that going on in Acts 19. And that's going to be a bone that Paul picks in his letter to the Ephesian church. So in the history that Luke is giving us here, we've seen Jesus transforming lives. The gospel shaping these early disciples. We've seen the the gospel advancing. And as it does, uh, a warning issue that, hey, don't cheapen the name of Jesus. Don't hang it around your neck like a good luck charm. And here Luke leaves us with a stark look at idolatry. So as the gospel goes out, about that time, we're told there rose no little disturbance concerning the way. Things are about to get bad. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made little silver trinkets. He would go out and set up shop, probably in the shadow of this temple dedicated to a false goddess. And there he would sell his little silver trinkets. There were several other craftsmen and everybody who would come there to worship would, hey, I came and saw one of the wonders of the world and I'm going to buy my little trinket and take it home with me so I can remember my idolatry. Guess what happened as the gospel was going out? It had economic impact. Idolatry was challenged. He says, hey, our ability to earn a living is being impacted by the gospel. We were making a killing. I was selling a hundred of these babies a day. And then Paul comes into town with this Jesus and this gospel. And suddenly, it's threatening things. Suddenly, we're not able to make as good a living. Suddenly, our worship of this false god is is under threat. Spread of the gospel impacts people's lives so much so that it disrupts what's wrong in society. Not just any disruption, but it was setting off an an entire riot. The city was about to, to come unglued over the gospel confronting idolatry. The spread of the gospel and the planting of churches in the name of Jesus changes things. It's a threat to the idolatry of a place. Is that true of us? Is that true of the gospel in our midst? Is that true of the gospel in our lives? Does the gospel threaten anything about your life? Listen, we have something interesting here. For for those that find themselves incredibly, inordinately angry, I think that's a, a layer here that is exposing the idolatry that's there. Demetrius and others are furious. And underneath that fury is the worship of a false god. One of their loves is being attacked. What is that in us? What are the loves of our heart that when they're attacked, it just makes us over the moon angry? We utterly lose it. You see this time and time and time again in the Scriptures dealing with idolatry when it is exposed. That's a hard thing. What is that for you? 
The gospel should challenge our idolatry. Demetrius at least knew that truth. He wasn't giving in to Paul. He wasn't giving over to this gospel. But he knew this truth was changing things. And shaping the community. It was challenging communal sin. It was pushing back against false idols. Listen, I believe this is a challenge for our church. How is the gospel doing that in our midst? What are those idols in our community that the gospel pushes against and looks at and takes, takes an honest look at those idolatries and we push back against it? I think we have a great opportunity. I would love to hear in the coming days and weeks some of your thoughts on this. I would love to hear how you discuss this together as the body. Let me just take one example. What about gossip? What about a culture? Two cities committed to to advancing themselves because they know something about someone else and they can share that in a way that harms them on the sly. And everybody's in the know except for the people who aren't. Pain follows and it topples like dominoes. Listen, gossip is an issue everywhere. It's an issue in our community. What can the church do about that? We can commit, utterly commit, to be peaceable people who are committed to truth. When you hear it, you can shut it down. If you hear it from me, you can say, don't go there. If I hear it from you, I can say, don't go there. What about our neighbors? When they start in on something like that, we can, we can advance the truth and shut it down. Listen, what impact does the gospel have going out in our community? I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the ways that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church changes people and places. This is going to be a huge theme in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He's going to spend three chapters telling us all about our union with Christ and all that that means. And then he's going to turn a corner and he says, there's not one area of your life that this does not impact. The gospel changes things. So the people riot. Paul does not intervene. He's told, hey, if you do, it's not going to go well. And brothers actually constrain him. And as we read this account, we're meant to just sit back and read it, just to watch it unfold. And then Paul goes on to the next place. And that's the snapshot of the church in Ephesus. The gospel going out. Jesus Christ changing things. Warnings being issued. And as the church grows, as disciples are made, idols are pushed against, and it causes bad things to happen. And then Paul goes on to the next place. Where are we going to find our place in that? Again, I encourage you to think about what this looks like individually. Idolatry in your own life, but also as a church, as the gospel goes out, what is it pushing back against? Paul will have more to say about that. 
The last thing I'll say is, again, in this desire to, to see the church advance, this desire to, for the church to go out, let's keep Christ central. Christ changes things. The gospel changes things. It changes whole cities. May God be pleased to do that in our midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, backstory of a church plant. Lord, here we see extraordinary things going on, and we look at our own lives and we're utterly ordinary, but we have an extraordinary gospel, an extraordinary king, an extraordinary savior. We pray, Lord, that as we grow as your disciples, that the gospel would change things. May it change us, expose our idolatry, and give us repentant hearts. Lord, and as the gospel goes out in our communities, may it confront and overthrow idolatry. Lord, this is too great for us. Would you be pleased to do this? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.